Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. You can say this week's show is going to be a bit bloody because we are going to cover the prevalence using an axe as a weapon to commit murder. This was quite the choice of weapon back in the 1800s and 1900s, early 1900s, I should say, and I'm highlighting 10 cases between 1900 and 1915. I did not include the axe murder of Lizzie Borden's parents, and if you're interested in that case, you can definitely find many podcasts covering her supposed crime. So let's begin with axe murder number one. And this is from the Topeka Daily Capital on July 22nd, 1907, where the headline reads, Insane Man Kills Three. Henry Scutcheon, a farmer about 50 years old, living near the village, today ran amuck with an axe, killing his invalid son, his wife, and her foster father. Scutcheon was later shot by Henry McClellan, a neighbor whom the crazed murderer had also attacked. The dead were Henry, Polly Scutcheon, and his wife. George Annie, Mrs. Scutcheon's foster father, was also killed. The Scutcheon farm life had apparently always been a happy one, except for the cloud which the son's invalidism cast over the family. Today, with no warning, so far as known, Scutcheon suddenly murderously attacked his son with an axe. He crushed the boy's head frightfully, and when his wife interfered, he turned on her and pursued the frightened, screaming woman from the house to the road where he knocked her down with his weapon. He then rushed back to the house and murdered his foster father-in-law. Next, he tried to destroy himself, a.k.a. commit suicide, by gashing his throat with a razor and taking Paris green. His wounds did not weaken him, and the poison did not take immediate effect. With axe in hand, he returned to the road where he had felled with his wife a few minutes before. The first blow did not kill her, and she had been carried into the house of Henry McClellan nearby. McClellan rushed to another neighbor's for help, and when Henry found that his wife was in the McClellan home alive, he smashed a window with his axe, jumped through it, and again attacked her. This time he crushed her skull. He then left the McClellan homeland and returned to his own house, 
But when Mr. McClellan returned from his search for the help, the crazed man came out and started over toward him, saying, I want you too. Quote, I will shoot you if you come across the road, replied McClellan, who had armed himself with a shotgun. Despite the warning, Scutcheon came across, and McClellan thereupon shot him dead. Again, that was from the Topeka Daily Capital. Let's move on to axe murder number two from the Butte Miner on May 22nd, 1906. The headline reads, Charge of Murder Against McIntyre. Defendant is accused of striking John Mohan with a fatal blow on the head with an axe. And murder is charged against B.W. McIntyre with an indictment that was filed yesterday by the county attorney. It is alleged that on February 24th, the defendant struck John Mohan on the head with an axe, inflicting a wound that proved fatal in six weeks. McIntyre stated that he had some trouble with Mohan when the latter attempted to break into a cabin. McIntyre was living with a woman. The accused man, however, denied that he struck Mohan with an axe. After receiving the injury, Mohan was taken to the St. James Hospital for treatment. McIntyre was then charged with having committed an assault in the first degree. But the case was dismissed at the preliminary examination as Mohan would not swear that it was McIntyre who struck him. After the preliminary examination, Mohan's wound began to trouble him and death ensued within a few days. McIntyre was then rearrested, this time on a murder charge, and is now confined in the county jail awaiting trial. So let's move on to axe murder number three, and this is from the Washington Post on February 20th, 1906, where the headline reads, Murdered in his own bed, aged Roanoke man, victim of stealthy assassin, head cut open with an axe. J.B. Trainum, former city sergeant, slain in his room within 50 feet of the police station. And robbery was not the motive as his money was untouched. He was a Confederate soldier. And according to the Post, J.B. was 69 years old, formerly city sergeant, and for many years city jailer was found murdered in his room in the rear of the city hall this afternoon. He was last seen alive when he retired to his room last night. When he did not appear for breakfast nor dinner, a search was instituted. As there was no reply to a knock at his door, the police looked over the transom and saw him lying on his bed, which was besmeared with blood. Apparently, he died under a rain of blows. His head was split open, evidently, with an axe the entire blade to the hell penetrating the brain. His chin was almost severed from his face by a blow from an axe or a hatchet, and his throat was cut on the left side as though an attempt had been made to sever the jugular vein. In his forehead were several gashes, all of which penetrated the skull. No weapons were found in the room, and the wounds were of such nature as to preclude any possibility of suicide. A coroner's jury decided unanimously that he had been murdered and that the weapon used was either a hatchet or an axe. The murder occurred under the shadow of the courthouse and within 50 feet of the police station, but there is not the slightest clue to the perpetrator. Robbery was evidently not the incentive, as his money was not touched and his valuable gold watch was found hanging 
near his bed in its accustomed place. So let's move on to axe murder number four from the McHenry Plain Dealer on April 30th, 1908. The headline reads, Woman slain with axe, brutal murder in Brownsville, New York. Two arrests made. What is apparently a most brutal murder was discovered late Monday in the manufacturing village of Brownsville, four miles west of the city. The victim was Mrs. Sarah Brennan, wife of Patrick Brennan, a papermaker and a highly respected resident of the little place. The body of Mrs. Brennan frightfully hacked an axe and the skull crushed in. She was found tightly packed in a large trunk at her home. Near the trunk was a bloody axe. The police claim that they already solved the mystery of the woman's death through a confession, which, it is alleged, they have obtained. According to the police, the murder was done in a hotel formerly known as the Barton House, which is located near the Brennan home. The motive, the officers allege, was robbery. Pending further inquiry into the case, the police have taken into custody James Farmer and his wife, who are neighbors of the Brennans. Well, let's keep the ball rolling and move on to axe murder number five. Now, this is from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on June 13, 1903. The headline reads, Woman Killed with an Axe, Mysterious Murder Near Middletown, Connecticut. Head of victim nearly severed from body. On June 13th, a revolting murder, which at present is wrapped in a mystery, was committed in Middlefield, a suburb of Middletown, sometime yesterday. The victim is George Smith, the wife of a Rockfall factory employee. She came to her death by the powerful blow of an axe, which nearly severed the head from the body. The crime was discovered shortly after 6 o'clock last night. When a boarder at the Smith house, known as John, returned from the factory where he is employed, the police notified of the murder and the chief, accompanied by the medical examiner, hurried to the scene. They made a careful search of the premises without finding a single clue. There is no sign of a struggle in the room and not an article is disturbed. The theory of robbery is disposed by the fact that several trunks containing sums of money were not touched. The victim was 24 years of age and she lived with her husband in a house which is about 200 feet back from the roadway and an eighth of a mile from any other house. The five boarders who lived with the Smith family worked in the wooden mills, woolen mills with Smith. All are Polanders. Three of the men and two were women, one of the latter being, being the body of the murdered woman. That was a short one, so let's move on to number six. And this is from the Alexandria Times Tribune on July 1906. Found in Arkansas, requisition issued for alleged Scott County murderer. On July 2nd, Scottsburg, news has been received here of the arrest of William A. Spores, a fugitive from justice with a charge of murder hanging over his head. At Moralton, Arkansas, a requisition for his return to Indiana has been secured by Governor Hanley. Spores is charged with the murder of Douglas Fawbush, a Scott County farmer whose body was found hidden in the Muscatock bottom where it had been after his head had been crushed with an axe. The murder of Fawbush 
caused a sensation in Scott County about three weeks ago as he was a widely known and influential farmer. Suspicion fastened upon spores immediately as he was seen riding with the farmer the day he was last seen alive. A common chopping axe which Fawbush was carrying in his wagon was used to commit the murder. Spores left Scott County the day after the murder, but Fawbush's body was not found for nearly a week. Before coming to Scott County, Spores was a Salvation Army worker and was known in Indianapolis for the fervency of his street sermons. Interesting character there. So, let's go on to axe murder number seven, and this one is a pretty brutal one, and I'm going to tell you that up front because this involves a family annihilator, and this is from the Buffalo Inquirer on October 2nd, or October 10th, 1902. The headline reads, Wholesale Slaughter by Youth of 17. The article goes on to state, the strain of perfecting an appliance for patents on an air brake which are pending in Washington, turned the mind of Charles Cawley, 17 years old, an inventor of Second Avenue, Homestead, and led him to commit one of the most appalling crimes this section of the state has ever witnessed. With an axe this morning, the maniac murdered his mother, one sister, and hacked four other children so badly that they will probably die. He tried to kill his two brothers, but was discovered by one of them who managed to wrestle the axe from him and turned him over to the police. The dead are Mrs. Hannah Cawley, aged about 40, head and upper portion of her body almost pounded to a jelly. Belle Cawley, aged 12, who slept with her mother. She, her head was frightfully battered. The injured are Joseph, the baby of the family, aged 15 months, now, his head and chest were also battered. At South Bide Hospital, he is not expected to live. Adeline, who is six years old, also had a head battered, and she is at South Side Hospital, and she will not recover. Raymond, six years old, the twin of Adeline, had a horribly injured head and will not live. He is also at South Side Hospital. Agnes, 10 years old, had her head crushed, and she will not live again at Southside Hospital. Now, the Cowley family occupied a neat six-room house on 2nd Avenue in Homestead between Dixon and McClure Street. Last night, all the members retired about 10 o'clock. Mrs. Cowley and Bell occupied one bed, while the others, Joseph, Adeline, Raymond, and Agnes, occupied the other. And cribs in the same room, which is on the second floor. Charles, the murderer, his brother's James 20 years old, and Harry, 14 years old, occupied the front room of the second floor adjoining their mother's room. It was sometime shortly before 3 o'clock when Charles arose and dressed himself without awakening any of the sleeping family. He did not put on his shoes, but stealthily went to the cellar and secured an axe. He then returned to the sleeping apartments. A small lamp, burning low, stood on a table in the mother's room. All the family were sound asleep, and the only noise that broke the stillness was their breathing. The maniac first attacked his mother, swung the axe with such force that with the first blow the skull was crushed. The mother evidently never knew what struck her. Her demented body 
thinking that his first blow did not do its work, pounded the already dead, dead mother's head almost to a pulp. Belle, the oldest daughter, slept undisturbed. Charles then struck her with an axe. The first blow slipped and awoke the girl, but only for a second. She did not have time to scream, for the next blow killed her. The maniac then pounded her head as he had his mother's. The bed and bolster were saturated with their blood. Beside the bed of the mother stood the boy's crib, occupied by Joseph, aged 15 months. Charles struck the sleeping infant on the head. The baby did not wake up, and thinking that he had killed it, he passed to the other side of the room where Raymond, his twin sisters Adeline and Agnes were asleep. Here he carried out the same terrible program, only that did not strike the children as often. The mother and the eldest daughter were dead. The three others were unconscious. Charles then started into the front room to kill his other brothers, and this is when James awoke for a moment before Charles came into the room. Just as the maniac opened the door, one of the children in the other room began to moan, and this caused James to awaken. By the yellow light from the lotus lamp in the mother's room, James saw Charles step in with an axe clutched tightly in his hand. The weapon was dripping with blood, and the murder was spattered from head to toe. James jumped over the foot of his bed, and just as he reached the floor, Charles slammed the door, and the room was dark. Charles had not seen James leave for the bed, leave the bed, for he went to the side, usually occupied by his oldest brother, and rained blow after blow on what he thought was the body of his sleeping brother, but which proved to be nothing but a pillow. In the murder of his other relatives, Charles had used the butt or the pole of the axe. But in the darkened room, he used the sharp edge at times. And the clothing and bolster were almost backed to pieces. I should say hacked to pieces. James did not move from his position at the side of the bed, but waited. Suddenly, with subdued mutterings, the maniac threw open the door leading into the chamber of death, and the front room was again lighted with the rays from the flickering lamp. Charles then saw James and started for him. James jumped to one side while the axe grazed his arm and struck the foot of the bed, breaking the furniture into splinters. This served to madden him more. He poised the axe in the air again and made another rush at his brother. James seized a rocking chair and made ready to defend himself. Again, the axe was swung through the air, but this time it struck the chair, which was broken. Charles relaxed his grip on the axe, and just as he did so, James closed in on him and caught him about the body. While he held his murderous brother, he managed to draw on his trousers and then started for the police station with him. So that case is pretty disturbing. And when you have a 17-year-old who is acting so maniacally, I think you can be concerned uh, about what may occur if things don't go his way. Again, he was 17 and he was already applying for patents in Washington. Just an interesting case of pressure getting to somebody. So let's move on to axe murder number eight. 
from the Lamar Register on February 1st, 1905. The headline reads, Brutal Murder, the Most Horrible Crime in the History of Lamar Committed Monday Morning. In the nearly 19 years since the town of Lamar was established, think about that for a second, 19 years old, it has seen all the stages of pioneer life in the West and has been the temporary abiding place of most and all various types of bad men at one time or another, but through all the changing phases of its citizenship, the better element has been strongly predominant that it has been known as the most law-abiding city of the valley, and the crime of murder was never known here. But Monday morning, this record was broken, and a murder committed so cowardly and brutal that it is almost impossible to believe the perpetrator was a human being. Julio Rodriguez and his wife have been running a chili parlor in Lamar for nearly two years, and for the past year have been located in the rear room of Paxton Block, part of the family rooming upstairs and part in a tent back of the building. With them lived a nephew, Feliz Gara, and a niece, Guaquina Gara, a little 17-year-old blind girl. The latter helped them keep the lunch counter and also slept in the room at the aid. Monday morning, when Rodriguez went into the chili parlor to open up about 7 o'clock, he found the little girl lying on the bed with her head horribly battered up and a bloody axe lying nearby. A trunk near the bed was covered with blood and had been broken open with the bloody axe. Its contents, cash, mostly in fives and ten dollar gold pieces, two watches, a number of silk handkerchiefs had been stolen. Under Sheriff Fred Lynch and Marshals Kelsey and Russell were called at once and an investigation started. Suspicion was directed towards a Mexican named Jesus Rodriguez, but no kin to the family and search was made for him, but he was gone and he had just disappeared. Jesus Rodriguez has been working for the railroad with the gang laying track for the new switches and has been living with the Rodriguez family sleeping in the tent. He has been going to work early and always got his breakfast at the lunch stand at four, the little girl getting and letting him in, and then going back to bed. There was evidence that he had cooked and eaten his breakfast as usual, and it is supposed that the little girl, asleep, he attempted to open the trunk, which aroused her. He is said to have stopped at a saloon about five, and in paying for his drink, exhibited both $5 and $10 gold pieces. And it was afterwards that was found that he boarded a train, number seven, and paid fare to La Junta. He was probably in La Junta, La Junta, by the time the murder was discovered here. Sheriff, Sheriff Thomas and Deputy Lynch went to La Junta last night and are now in his trail on his trail further west. The body of the little girl was removed to the undertaking parlors and Coroner Fred Lee impaneled the following jury to hold an inquest. John Curry, Fred Berger, W.E. Stafford, Watson, James Holston, and Dan Carl. Now, the inquest was held yesterday after noon. <sighs> My fucking God, dude. At four, the little girl letting him in and then going back to bed. There was evidence that he had cooked and eaten his breakfast as usual. 
and it is supposed that thinking the little girl was asleep, he attempted to open the trunk, but it aroused the little girl. It is said that he had stopped to a saloon about five and in paying for his drink exhibited both $5 and $10 gold pieces. And it was afterwards that he had boarded a train, number seven, and paid fare to La Junta. He was probably in La Junta by the time the murder was discovered here. Sheriff Thomas and Deputy Lynch went to La Junta last night and are now on his trail further west. The body of the little girl was removed to the undertaking parlors, and the coroner, Fred Lee, impaneled the following jury to hold an inquest. John Curry, Fred Berger, W.E. Stafford, George Watson, James Hoselton, and Dan Carl. The inquest was held yesterday afternoon and returned a finding of murder without attaching a probable guilt to any party. It is the hope of all citizens of the town that the perpetrator of this brutal crime will one day be caught and speedy justice meted out to him by the law as he richly deserved. So let's move on to number nine. This is from Marshfield News and the Wisconsin Hub on October 15, 1914. And the headline reads, Woman slain with axe, another axe murder in Missouri baffles police. Another mysterious axe murder was added to the long list of such crimes already recorded in Missouri and Kansas with the finding of the mutilated body of Mrs. B.F. Matthews in bed at her home here. Mrs. Matthews, 80 years of age and reputed wealthy, was slain by an axe while her husband slept peacefully in the same room. The crime was, in many respects, similar to the Moore axe murders which startled Columbia. 15 miles from Hartsburg, just about a year ago. That's a short story. And now we're going to move on to the final murder. And that is axe murder number 10. And this is from the Ottawa Daily Republic on June 13th, 1912, where the headline reads, The Widow Denies Axe Murder. Miss, Mrs. Ida May Keller, who yesterday afternoon confessed to murdering her husband, and seven-year-old daughter with an axe became hysterical in her cell in the county jail at midnight last night and crowd cried out denials of her confession. She called the sheriff to her cell this morning and repudiated her confession, saying the detectives had forced it out of her. The sheriff says the confession was made voluntarily. Mrs. Keller will probably be arraigned late this afternoon. Was Mrs. Keller insane? The belief that Mrs. Keller, confessed murderer of her husband and small daughter, is insane and is making all sorts of impossible statements is growing today. She today accused a section hand of murdering her husband with a penknife. A warrant for the accused man's arrest was issued, but a preliminary hearing will be waived. Now, on June 13th, in a sworn confession that was made... Yesterday afternoon, Miss I, Mrs. Ida Keller, who was the wife of Arthur, Arthur Keller and the mother of Margaret Keller, who was seven years old, who were found murdered in bed at their home on the outskirts of Harrisonville on Tuesday, admitted that she killed her husband and little daughter with an axe. Her confession was read to the coroner's jury, which immediately returned a verdict holding Mrs. Keller responsible for the dual murder. She is in jail here waiting 
the action of the grand jury. Quote, I killed them, both with our own acts, her confession says, in part. Quote, I don't know why I did it. I can't now realize what motive I had, if I had any at the time. It all seems like a hazy dream to me. I went to bed Monday night feeling badly and lay down with my clothes on. Later I woke and impelled by a force I could not resist, I secured the axe and returning to the room where my husband and Margaret were asleep in the same bed, I struck them both blow upon blow. Only after the deed was done did I realize what I was doing. Quote, I remember striking them both, but I don't know which one I struck first. The blind was up and I could see them there in bed. The child was still alive. Mrs. Keller then recites how she lighted a lamp and went back into the room where Keller and the little girl lay. Keller was dead, but life still remained in the child. She said she began to realize then what had occurred. She washed the blood from her hands, she says, lighted a paper on a chair in the room of death, and went to a neighbor's home to give the alarm. The burnt paper she used partly to substantiate her story of how she had got a glimpse of the alleged masked murderer. By the burning paper, she claimed in her original story she could see, but dimly, and while she could not tell if the man were white or black, she recalled that he wore brown socks and was shoeless. In giving the alarm to neighbors, Mrs. Keller said a man had entered her room where she was asleep with the other two Keller children, Edna May, three, and George, five years old. The masked man had struck her, she claimed, but his blow was deflected when the axe struck the head of the bed. She had grappled with the man and wrestled the weapon from him, after which he had fled. Mrs. Keller now refutes all of this story and admits that she also knocked off part of the headboard of her bed to aid in her story. Mrs. Keller was permitted last night to visit with her mother, Mrs. Freud, who lives near Harrisonville, according to two deputies who accompanied her there. Her mother and three sisters returned to Harrisonville with her yesterday morning. It is believed that Mrs. Keller told the truth to her widowed mother and was advised to make a clean breast of the whole affair. Holding to her first story, while on the stand during the morning, However, Mrs. Keller held to the original story. After lunch, she was placed in a room in the prosecutor's office. About three o'clock, she made the statement. Benjamin Pratter, son of the sheriff and a deputy, wrote down her statement. Harry Arthur, a Kansas City detective who has been employed in the case, and coroner Frank Runnenberger also heard her story. The three sisters left before Mrs. Keller's confession was made. One of them is married and lives near East Lynn. The other two are single, one of them being employed in a restaurant in Nevada and the other residing at home with her mother. A reason for taking the life of the older daughter, Margaret, came out at the hearing. It was shown that Mrs. Keller did not like this child because she was too much like the Kellers. Quote, when Mrs. Freud was told of her daughter's confession, she broke down but said, frankly, Quote, well, I am glad she has told the truth. I expected it. As soon as I heard of the awful tragedy, 
I made up my mind that Ida was responsible. I will take Edna May and George home with me. From several statements made during her confession, it is believed by the prosecution that Mrs. Keller's defense will be insanity. Arthur is the one that secured the confession. The credit of obtaining a confession from Mrs. Keller belongs to Detective Harry Arthur of Kansas City. Arthur was employed by the prosecuting attorney to work on the case. Yesterday afternoon, he confronted her with the evidence he had, some of it obtained from her own supposition. George, five years old, required three hours of constant questioning to break the woman down. When she did, however, she freely told them all that has occurred and made her written statement in the presence of the other witnesses. So that will do it for this week's episode of Who Killed? The 10 murders that I chose from the 1900 to 1915. All very brutal because there is no such thing as a clean killing when you're using an axe. But thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And as you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. And if you want to follow me on the Twitter, cesspool, X, whatever the hell it's called these days, feel free to do so. And if you'd like to leave a review, that'd be great too. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.